Elemento is an online market filled with Canadian organic and natural goods. Choose from hundreds of sustainable and plant-based products at Elemento.com and have them delivered straight to your door. Shopping for delicious, nutritious, and organic plant-based foods has never been easier. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Paw and Order. I am your host, Jessica Scott-Reed, and I am joined by my co-host, Camille Labchuk. Hello, Camille. How are you doing over there in Ontario? You know, I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Things are pretty good. I uh, am increasingly, you know, dismayed by the COVID cases, but... I did go to a slaughterhouse vigil this morning at St. Helens Slaughterhouse, where they kill a lot of cows every day. Oh, wow. So that was definitely interesting. Yeah, I mean, today, by the time this episode comes out, probably the weather will be not so nice again. But today is like 23 degrees in Toronto. So it was actually, you know, a good day to be outside at one of these things. But it was it was gruesome. Um, I went because obviously the ag gag laws in Ontario are going to come fully into effect before too long, probably later this year. And I wanted to see how vigils had changed since the laws passed. And so what did you find? Well, we saw two trucks of cows coming in. And actually, it was my first time being at St. Helens Slaughterhouse. So there's there's St. Helens, there's Riding Regency next door, which is currently shut down by the CFIA. They lost their license due to some um, food oh, practices right, that were right, not so good. Right, yeah. Not due to the animal cruelty, of course, even right. though there was, you know, video footage of a cow probably being skinned alive. But, you know, I remember that one. That was incredibly disturbing. Very, very disturbing. But, uh, you know, it's really inspiring to see all these people giving up their Tuesday morning on a beautiful day there to speak out for the cows. And lots of support from motorists. Tons of people honked when they drove by. But we, we did see two trucks of cows pull up and um, unload into the slaughterhouse. And one of the trucks, Jess, actually had a downed cow on it, oh, which no. was very troubling to see. Um, not a rarity in Canadian agriculture because, of course, uh, 1.6 plus million animals arrive dead or dying, or sorry, dead every year at slaughterhouses. Right. But it was sad. So And the stench, the stench, the stench is something you just, you don't get a sense of how bad it smells from watching photos or watching videos or seeing photos from slaughterhouse vigils. It's just the smell of death and and there's actually literally a conveyor belt that's bringing body parts out that the meat industry doesn't want to feed to people wow it's dumping them into a truck that you can see from the road it's just madness 
That is, uh, you, you paint a pretty grim picture there. I was just going to ask, so the with the with the egg egg order, how are activists, are they acting any differently uh, around the trucks? Uh, were police there? What's the What was the sense of it in this point in time? Well, this slaughterhouse has got a different relationship uh, <clears throat> between the workers, or so the, the demonstrators and between the slaughterhouse mm-hmm. than, say, Fuhrman's slaughterhouse in Burlington, where right. things are pretty tense right now. Uh, there's not really any tension there, but uh, people did tell me today that it seems like the trucks have been trying to trying to avoid the activists to a greater extent so they will park down the road mm. instead of parking near the slaughterhouse if they have to wait before they can unload because mm. if they are waiting that would give the advocates an opportunity to approach the truck and get video footage so they are trying to hide things and it seems like especially since bill 156 passed the truckers are trying to do that more and more okay oh interesting Interesting. Yeah. And, how, and how are you hanging in there in Winnipeg? Well, we just got new orders put in place for COVID that we uh, are in complete lockdown now. Um, so I'm trying to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm glad that we're hopefully going to get this finally under control. But if anyone needs me, I will be in my house as I have been every day for a month. <laughs> uh, and that's where <laughs> I will be staying. Thankfully, we can do this podcast from our kitchen tables. <laughs> It is a COVID-proof co- podcast. Um, yeah. God forbid either of us actually gets COVID, but un- until then, we're going to keep going. Thank- <laughs> thankfully, um, you know, even though we're dealing with such bad news all the time with these COVID restrictions and deaths and, and all the horrible things that are coming with it, we have had some good news this week, depending on who you ask, uh, down south in the U.S., right? Indeed we have. Indeed we have. So Trump is is gone. I don't think he's going to admit that, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's any possible way that he can hang on to power. And it doesn't seem like his court challenges are going anywhere at this point because there's just no um, whisper of actual voter fraud or irregularities. So that's great news. And congratulations to all of our American friends who listen to this podcast. I'm sure many of you are, are relieved. Yeah, and there's so much uh, renewed hope in issues like climate change uh, in particular, and of course, uh, with the development of a COVID-19 vaccine and um, all of the other public health measures that uh, Biden promises to put in place. Um, But the climate action is a really important one. I've been doing a bit of work um, for the Planet Friendly News, which is a publication for which I'm a regular contributor, uh, talking to some plant-based protein and alternative meat advocates, uh, specifically from the Good Food Institute and from the Center for Biodiversity, talking about their sort of hopes and expectations for meat alternative production under uh, a Biden administration. And there's so much, so much renewed hope uh, in moving forward with sort of moving over subsidies from harmful animal agriculture over to these alternative protein productions, research development. Um, it was just, it's really heartwarming to hear from these advocates um, that they are so hopeful now. That is heartwarming. And I, I have a lot of hope for them too. And I, I think supporting the alternative plant protein sector is just a no-brainer at this point. It's good for the climate. It's good for uh, human health. Of course, it's good for the animals, which is why we're here. Um, But it's also good for businesses and governments do love to be friendly for two businesses. So I do hope that that, um, you know, business lobby that's supporting investment in this area will prevail over the animal egg industry. Yeah, the Good Food Institute is really um, uh, a leader in that from what what I found. So you can read the the blog that's coming out on probably the same day as this podcast uh, on Planet Friendly News. 
Oh, good. And we will link to it in the show notes for you guys. So in other news, Jessa, I actually this week saw the release of, of two documentaries about Regan Russell that, that just came out. And of course, Regan was the longtime animal save activist who was killed outside Fearman's Pork in June, just two days after Bill 156 passed in Ontario. And uh, the first film, uh, did, you, did you see this one? It was called There Was a Killing by Earthlings filmmaker Sean Monson. Yeah, I watched it. I, uh, I was given the early uh, press version, so I got to see it before the big debut on Saturday, which I'm sure probably was a bit overshadowed because of the election. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people saw it because it is absolutely haunting and enraging how they sort of pull apart what all happened that day and then what happened after in terms of um, the the proceedings in court and and the counter protesting, which we've talked about on this show before. Uh, it was it was absolutely um, infuriating to, to watch. What did you think of it? Yeah, I agree. It was it was very well put together, very well paced, and definitely left you with a sense of um, frustration over our justice system and over how the police have consistently been protecting that slaughterhouse and overcharging activists and undercharging or not charging the um, slaughterhouse or other actors within that industry that may commit offenses. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll post a link to that one in the show notes as well. I believe there's uh, a YouTube link that's now publicly available. And then the other documentary, I'm actually not sure that this one is out in public yet, but I've seen a preview version of it. And it's called We Are Their Voice, the, the Regan Russell story. And this is by Cave Light uh, Film Productions in the States. Um, also just incredibly well done. And if it's out, I'll post a link. Have you, have you seen that one yet? No, I haven't seen it. So what uh, what does this one look like it's going to be about? You know, it's it's the same um, topic. Obviously, it's about Regan, and it focuses on uh, who she was as a person, uh, what her legacy was like. It has interviews with all kinds of uh, Canadians, including me, uh, people who were there on the scene, people who've been doing save events at Burlington at the Slaughterhouse for a long time, and it's also very, very touching. Now, we should give a little viewer discretion warning at this point, because there are yeah. a couple of very difficult scenes to watch in each of those um particularly scenes from the aftermath of when she was run over yeah so yeah um, it was it was yeah. uh, i would say it's an image that will stay with me absolutely forever and so anybody who um might not be able to contend with that just be warned They're, they do provide in at least in uh, there was a killing they do provide a good uh warning before it happens before it's it's actually shown so that you could fast forward or look away um and you may want you may want to do that because it was definitely one of the worst things i've ever seen yeah yeah i agree very very difficult to see but definitely tune out if you don't want to see that but the rest of each of those docs is is very worth seeing yep so um in other news uh Speaking of ag gag, we continue the fight against ag gag laws. <laughs> and I've spoken about this before on the podcast, Jess, but Animal Justice's Voiceless for Animal Justice fundraiser is ongoing. And actually, the day after this podcast comes out is the official day of silence for the action. So the deal, just a reminder, is that everyone is going silent on November 14th, so no talking for 24 hours, to raise funds to um, help Animal Justice carry on the fight against Ontario's ag gag law, Alberta's ag gag law, and to prevent provinces like Manitoba, where you are, Jess, from passing them in the first place. Yes. And yes. the fundraising is going very well. Everyone has been incredibly generous, and it's so inspiring to see so much support for this work. So... 
you know, check it out. We'll post a link in the show notes. And if you want to make a donation, we'd uh, welcome your heroic efforts. Yeah, I've seen great posts uh, on social media, Instagram, lots of people sharing their fundraising efforts and their intention to go silent on November 4th. So it looks like a popular initiative. Absolutely. Well, if you want to support the animals, another way you can do so is uh, by leaving us a review for the Pod and Order podcast. We have over 100 five-star reviews, which we're super proud of, and it always raises my spirits, Jess. I'm sure <laughs> yours, too, when uh, someone leaves a new review. It's, it's, it's so exciting for us to you know hear that you like to hear the show, that you like the content. And leaving a review, actually, it's not just for us to make us feel good. It's to help other people find the podcast. That's what it's really about because we do want more people to be exposed to these ideas. So check us out, leave us a review. And you can also support us on Patreon, which is a platform that lets you support creators like podcasters for as little as a dollar a month or as much as you like. And through the Pawn Order Patreon, it's patreon.com slash order. We also offer regular prizes for patrons. And, uh, you know, check this out if you'd like to learn more, but we do have some cool merchandise coming down the pipe. And apart from the prizes, of course, you get our undying affection and our gratitude and our love for being a supporter. Did you say merchandise? Merchandise! Everyone loves merchandise. Who wouldn't want an Animal Justice coffee mug, right? I can't wait for that merchandise. I can't wait. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Okay, well, we're soon going to have an interview with Leslie Fox, uh, executive director of the Fur Bearers, which fights to protect animals who are killed and used in the fur trade. But first, Jess, we have some news to get through. Yes, we have a couple stories. Um, The first one is this. I'm hoping you're going to give us all a little bit more Uh, context to this story about the consultation on plant-based meat labeling that popped up recently. Um, I filled out the questionnaire. It was odd. (laughs) I find the whole thing quite (laughs) odd. Um, So what they're trying to do is, is have this consultation period to figure out how they're going, how they should be labeling this sort of third group of protein so we have you know our animal-based proteins we have our simulated meat as they call it you know uh plant-based meat products or meat simulated so things that are specifically like burgers or chicken but not made of animals and now there's a third category right where they're talking about plant-based protein foods that don't fit into either one of those it is so confusing. I do not know what they're aiming for here. Right? Although I, I do know one thing that they're aiming for, which is to try to protect the meat industry at the expense of the plant-based meat industry. So yeah, basically, as you point out, the CFIA, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, it's the regulator for food standards of identity. So how we refer by common names to different foods. And it controls labeling laws. It controls all those sorts of things about how food is marketed in Canada. So <clears throat> the nitty gritty of the proposal is that they want to introduce some sort of regulatory regime to describe vegan meat products. And they want to do so in a way that looks like it's probably going to discriminate uh, against vegan meat products. So yeah, they're saying category one, there's meat and poultry products. No problem, those are already regulated. Mm -hmm. Category two, simulated meat and poultry products. So they're saying that these are products that are purposely formulated to resemble and substitute for a meat or poultry product. Now they're saying two things about this. First of all, they want these products to use the word simulated on the package. So simulated beef, for instance, is how Beyond Meat would have to describe its products or Impossible Foods. 
And, you know, they specifically point out as an example of a product that would be in this category, something that like makes a claim that it bleeds like beef. Mm. So the problem, Jess, is that the word simulated, not a great marketing tool. Oh my gosh. Like, can we not think of something better? Like simulated, that's like, like it makes me think of simulated bacon bits from the 1980s that everybody hates. <laughs> right, right. It's just it, like what they're I think what their stated rationale would be for this whole exercise is they don't want people to be misled by food labels. But the problem is, is that there's no evidence that anyone is misled by a package of field roast or a Beyond Burger. Uh, these products are being specifically marketed to people who don't want to eat meat. They want to eat less meat. So they're choosing a non-meat alternative. So for the companies, if consumers were confused about what their product is, that would be a disaster. But I think the influence of the cattlemen industry types, the beef industry, is all over this. They've apparently been the um, the driver in the States of these unfair labeling laws. And there's been all kinds of examples from the States where they've attempted these sorts of things too. So yeah, I mean, takeaway for people is that this consultation is going on until December 3rd. Yeah, and the, we should the, all participate in it. The funny thing I find is like you say, there's really no evidence of consumers being confused. I've written about it a number of times um, as these labeling issues have come up a couple times over the last few years, even in Canada. Um, but there does seem to be a lot of evidence that these labeling issues are brought up for very specific reasons by the meat industry and has nothing to do with consumers whatsoever. I mean, they say, uh, I think I read during... Uh, in the document that 40% of Canadians are actively trying to incorporate more plant-based foods. So, I mean, that's a signal to the beef industry. Oh, we got to do something about it. And it seems these labeling wars or what they've I've heard dubbed as the meat muzzle uh, is just to, like you say, paint plant-based protein products, plant-based meat alternatives um, in a in a lesser light. And to use words like simulated uh, is not is not going to be helpful. And that's you're right. That's exactly what they're trying to do. But doesn't this all just look so obvious to everybody or is it just us? <laughs> Uh, it's certainly obvious to me what's going on here. So yeah, I, I mean, I guess the other category that we haven't really gotten to yet in, in some detail is that they're saying that there's this other category, which is other products which do not substitute for meat and poultry products. So there's sort of like veggie burgers, but not really. And as an example of this, there could be like a veggie burger containing mostly vegetables instead of meat-like plant-based products. Mm -hmm. And they're saying with that one... They don't really care about that one. They don't want them to be fortified to meet the same compositional standards as meat. They don't want the word simulated to be on there. Uh, they're just saying, you know, that's fine. So I think what's really going on here is, like you said, just no evidence that anyone's being misled about this stuff. But the meat industry is circling the wagons and trying to slap these discriminatory labels on vegan products that undermine um, consumer interest in those foods. Yeah, it's, it just reeks of desperation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, like so is, the falafel, is, is falafel going to be in that category? Like, they, I think they used an example of a lentil burger that isn't actually trying to be beef. It's just trying to be lentils. <laughs> like, we're talking about the intention of the food here. Like, it, like does falafel need a special label now? Like, I don't know. It's too much. It's it's hilarious. <sighs> too confusing. And if, if you want to take the survey, we'll, we'll include a link to the survey. Although... Animal Justice is going to put out some guidance on this to help you navigate the survey because it is confusing as heck. It kind of asks these questions that seem designed to get the responses that the CFIA wants. Yes. So, um, yeah, so stay tuned. There's definitely going to be more to come on this. 
Good, good, because it was weird. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, we have a new story out of Alberta, which is that um, unfortunately, Canada's first recent case of a rare swine flu variant has been found in a central Alberta patient according to the province's chief medical officer. So this is a dangerous influenza. Um, you know, we, we know, Jess, very well that influenza viruses normally circulate in pigs and they can jump the species barriers into humans. And this is, in fact, what happened in 2009, where there was that massive outbreak of swine flu. Uh, so it's it appears to be happening again, um, as if we didn't need more sickness in the midst of a global pandemic. You can thank the pig industry for that. Yeah, I mean, like, how much more evidence do we need that the way that we are farming animals is a breeding ground for viruses that can affect humans? Although in this case, they said that it's not a virus that can jump from human to human, so they think. But as we are seeing, um, like you are going to speak with Leslie, with uh, the mink farms, that these viruses can mutate. And it only takes one. It only takes one mutation. So even though they're really downplaying it right now as if this was a very isolated, very rare situation... I mean, if, if COVID-19 is teaching us anything, it should be that we are we should be not taking any of this stuff lightly. And also, it's it also shows more issues for humans in the meat production industry, right? For the farmers, for those working in slaughterhouses, working this closely with, with animals is a human rights issue because somebody caught this, this virus from a pig and was sick. Yeah, it's a total human rights issue, just the, the same as these uh, viruses transmit really easily in slaughterhouses. Certainly COVID does because of the conditions. People who work in pig farms have um, some issues with this, too. They're put in a position where they could contract diseases like this. So, you know, it, there, it is time for our reckoning. The way we intensively farm animals, and we're going to talk with Leslie about how minks are intensively farmed and the issues there with COVID jumping from minks and mutating. But we've got a clear example here of a risk that is clear and present coming from farming pigs. And it's just time, I think, just that society wakes up and asks if that taste of bacon is really worth the risk of another pandemic and more death. Yeah, really. How many more examples do we need? Right. And how, how much further are we really going to let this go in terms of, of how it's going to affect people? And, and also the animals. The animals are sick. Right. We have to think about how this is affecting them as well. And I, I just don't know how many more examples we need. I feel like there's more and more stories of these viruses popping up um, all the time. And it just takes for one more to take off into the population. Maybe that'll get people to care. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it will. I mean, it, it seems tragically that we don't care about these issues until it's too late. So I just hope we learn a lesson from COVID-19 at some point and, and start to take action with regards to these intensive finding, uh, confinement operations. Yep. Let's hope. Let's hope. All right. Well, and our last news story for today is an interesting article in Corporate Nights. Yeah, I, about lo I love animal this magazine. Testing. Isn't this such a great magazine? Corporate Nights does a really great job uh, of bringing these stories to light. This article um, regarding animal testing was so thorough, interviewed so many great sources about the limitations of animal testing, especially as we're developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the, the writer, Roberta Staley, uh, just goes through in great detail um, the way vaccines are created right now, uh, but also some advances in, in terms of centers for alternatives to animal testing, which are popping up around the world. There's a great one in the States. 
um, at Johns Hopkins University. And of course, Chandra Sekera runs one here in Canada at the University of Windsor. Um, but, you know, some, some information from the people who run those centers, they talk about how it's so much more efficient and so much quicker to produce vaccines without using conventional animal testing. And it's also a more accurate and scientifically sound way of producing these medicines. Um, because just one of the statistics I just find the most shocking when, when you read about alternatives issues and the rationale for them is that 95% of new drugs that enter clinical trials don't actually make it to the market. So that means these are drugs that worked in animals, but when they move to human studies, they fail. And it's because humans and animals, other animals, I should say, are, are just not the same. Our biology does not map. So let's use human models like microchips, um, like skin tissue samples, like other innovations instead of the animals. Yeah, Dr. Charu does such an amazing job um, of advocating for these alternative methods at the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods. I've interviewed her a number of times for a few different um, articles, publications, and one of the most profound things she said to me, we were at the Canadian Animal Law Conference, the first one in Halifax. We were sitting at a coffee shop doing an interview for We Animals Unbound Project. And on the same day was the Run for the Cure, the CIBC Run for the Cure, that's um, a fundraiser for breast cancer. And as we were sitting there watching the runners go by, she said to me, and I quote it in the Unbound um, Project profile, she says, I wish I could tell them they're not running for a cure, they're running from a cure. Because of the fact that the system requires these animal models, which we all know are ext extremely cruel. Um, but as well now, we're learning so ineffective, inefficient, um, and a waste, a waste of resources, a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of lives. And it's perhaps, as this article in Corporate Nights shows us, keeping us from innovations, keeping us from cures, keeping us from vaccines, as Dr. Charo also says. So I think if more people knew that perhaps what they're giving their money towards, you know, fundraising for different research for different diseases, that they may not be funding what they think they're funding. Um, and that places like the Canadian Centre for Alternative Animal Methods don't receive any federal funding, and that they really should. Um, that's something I've, I've been trying to really help advocate for as well in my work with, with her. Um, we need a, in Canada, like they do in other countries, receive government funding for for these alternative methods to be developed. We don't in Canada, and we need to. We absolutely do. Even even the U.S. is is funding this to a much greater extent. There's commitments to phase out animal testing in a bunch of different government sectors, and yeah, the the money has to follow here as well. I, I like I like the way she she put that running from a cure. Yeah, um, because the reality is it's true. We're we're losing opportunities to do better because people are so tied to these outdated animal models. Um, so yeah, the article details some of Dr. Charu's work. She is amazing and. Um, it also talks a little bit, I, I did an interview for it, full disclosure, and uh, I'm glad that the writer focused a little bit too on the inadequate animal welfare oversight system that we have for the use of animals in labs in Canada. Yes, Because that too. there's pretty much nothing. We've got a federal nonprofit, not a government agency, no legal oversight, no law enforcement capacity that sets these uh, non-binding standards for the use of animals in labs, and it has this voluntary certification program. 
Uh, yeah, it's been it's been sort of equated to NFAC, right? Like it sort of serves in the same way that it's sort of an industry led voluntary code of practice, right? Totally. And you see this over and over again. The farming industry, the lab industry, even the zoo industry has CASA, Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, where it tries to do its own accreditation private scheme. Right. Um, the fur industry approves traps itself, itself through the Fur Institute of Canada, where it tests these traps on animals in Alberta and then makes recommendations. Like it's it's a very common thing in animal use. Right. Uh, but it's not right. It's not right. I mean, these are animals who, whose lives are kept in private labs. We don't have any insight into what's happening to them. And we should, frankly. There, there, there should be no such thing as keeping animals in private property without any oversight whatsoever because they're vulnerable creatures who deserve our protection and oversight. And especially now that we're seeing, um, like you said, 95% failure rate, um, the fact that so many are being essentially tortured and almost always euthanized for things that don't actually end up being helpful for humans. And if we saw at the beginning of um, the pandemic, the very first lockdown, when we saw so many universities, university labs, mass culling the majority of their laboratory animals because suddenly, you know, no one was there to take care of them. And that was the most, quote, humane thing to do. Uh, And PETA came out and said, well, if your research was so important, how was it that you were so easily able to just kill them all? Uh, and so that was a big question that rose, uh, arose as well. And I wrote about it for the Globe and Mail as well, I think sentient media, asking that question. If animal testing is so important, then how come once the, once the lockdown hit, nothing really mattered as much and we could just kill all the animals? It's an important question. That is an important question. It'd be nice if a researcher would answer it. I, I hope point. someone's working on it. <laughs> anyway great piece we'll post the link in the show notes totally check it out are you looking for all the basics for your pantry but want canadian organic and natural brands that believe in animal compassion and sustainable eating elemento is the canadian owned online food market you've been looking for elemento carries canadian brands such as everland new world and the brand new bliss balls which i've tried and love Elemento believes that everyone deserves a kitchen packed with nutrient-rich, organic, and plant-based foods. Get any of their hundreds of products delivered to your door at elemento.com. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O.com. Or find endless types of recipes and sustainability tips on social media at Elemento Market. Use code PAWS15, that's P-A-W-S-1-5, to receive 15% off your next order. Okay, well, on to our main topic. I sat down with Leslie Fox from the Fur Bearers, and I'm super excited to share with you our discussion about the fur industry and its future, or hopefully lack thereof. And I'm very excited to introduce to you our guest for our special segment today, who is Leslie Fox. She's the executive director of the Fur Bearers and is passionate about wildlife. Leslie also serves on the board of directors for the Society for Humane Science and is the president and board chair for the Albany Community and Women's Service Society. Leslie's a certified humane education specialist through the National Association of Humane Education, Humane and Environmental Education, and graduated with honors from the British Columbia Institute of Technology in PR, Marketing Communications, and Nonprofit Management. She's currently finishing her Bachelor of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University and lives with her partner on Vancouver Island. 
And on top of all of that, this is a woman who knows more about the fur industry and the fur trade in Canada than anybody else I know. So Leslie, welcome to Pawn Order. Thanks for having me, Camille. Well, I'm really excited for our conversation. And one of the reasons that um, I thought it would be interesting to have you on at this juncture is because we've been hearing a lot about fur industry, fur issues in the news lately, and especially the links now between um, minks contracting COVID-19 and a potential mutation. So uh, this has been a much bigger discussion, it seems, in Europe than in Canada to date, which is unfortunate, but probably a lot of our listeners have seen some news in the last few weeks about um, some issues in particular in Denmark involving a mink cull. So Leslie, do you want to start off by just explaining to our listeners what the status is of the situation? The status is a big one. Uh, so, of course, there's information coming out about COVID all the time. And some of the new information has been involving mink. Um, so across the world, uh, there are mink farms. So very similar to factory farming, these operations uh, raise mink in confinement, intense confinement for the fur industry. So uh, they're raised and bred in small cages and large sheds, open sheds. Um, these animals are killed to provide fur trim uh, on coats, handbags, shoes, cell phone cases, makeup brushes, eyelash extensions, uh, all kinds of weird and, and wacky products. In Canada, there's about 100 mink farms, but the bulk of mink farming takes place in Denmark, uh, which is the primary producer of mink fur, then China, and then the Netherlands, um, and then some other countries, uh, mostly in Europe. So the news basically is that mink are carriers of COVID and can transmit it to people and people can transmit COVID to mink. And so this disease has been running back and forth and it's been detected on fur farms in the Netherlands, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, Italy, and the United States in Utah, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, all of which have resulted in mass die-offs um, or culls. So, I mean, the numbers are absolutely staggering. So we're in multi-millions. It, it really, I, ha I wouldn't even know where to put the number at this point of how many mink have, have been killed. And um, it's very upsetting, but it's also upsetting to know that regardless or not, a call or not, the outcome for a mink on a fur farm is never going to be positive, that the, these animals are, are born and raised and killed um, deliberately for a product that nobody needs. And, and it's extremely frustrating to know that this industry is essentially a reservoir of disease um, and con contributing to this global pandemic. Uh, and, and that's especially frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who have been in lockdown for so long or some form of lockdown, um, and the reason for the lockdown is that we know a lot now about how diseases transmit. We know that close contact is the key way that viruses, including COVID-19, jump to humans. Um, and that goes for other animals as well. So, you know, I think the more that we all as a society understand now about transmission of diseases like COVID-19, the more people are starting to question, okay, well, why would we have a factory farming situation where we're literally cramming animals into the conditions that we have all experienced firsthand are ideal for spreading viruses? It's, it's absolutely shocking. And 
And we also know there's some, again, mixed reports. It's hard getting you know, proper statistics just because the situation is so dynamic. But um, I believe it's um, in Denmark, they've recorded 214 people have contracted COVID directly from mink farms. Like that's a staggering number. That's just Denmark. So so we really don't um, have any transmission reports that I've seen yet uh, of other places. But it it is really, really alarming. And um, it's also not a good time for the fur industry. The fur industry couldn't possibly um, endure another crisis. They, they, they really can't afford it. Um, so I'm really curious to see how COVID affects the industry long-term, if the, the industry is, is able to pivot some way, somehow. Um, and I'm also, I guess the silver lining in all of this is I'm encouraged that all of this added international attention is finally putting this industry under the microscope because I think fur farming is a very obscure industry that doesn't really get a lot of attention, certainly in the media. It doesn't really get a lot of attention from the government. Um, And as consumers, I think there's an unfortunate idea that it's an industry that, um, certainly isn't part of Canadian culture and it is. Uh, so it's, it's great to be talking about it at the very least and hoping that more and more people will pay attention and we need to create some political will really is where this needs to go. Yeah, that's right. And, and speaking of political will, it's been interesting to watch the situation in Europe over the last few years because a number of countries in Europe have already outlawed for farming. And what's been very encouraging is to see even more countries starting to have this conversation. So can you give us a bit of an update on what the status is of fur farming in European countries right now where they have made progress? Oh, I'm so excited to report about this. And again, it's it, there's a lot going on. It's very dynamic, so it's hard to stay on top of. of. But so the latest information, it's 15 European countries uh, at this point have introduced legislation to ban or phase out fur farming. And that includes the UK, the Netherlands, Serbia, Czech Republic, Norway, Belgium, um, most recently France, Uh, voted to transition out of mink production and Israel of course made a big announcement recently Uh, they're the first country to ban uh, quote the immoral animal fur trade Uh, that was really significant of course as you know Camille with legislation there's some loopholes uh, which we're never happy about but it definitely is a step in the right direction so we're feeling really encouraged about that as awesome news, such awesome news for minks and other animals kept in fur farms. Uh, another encouraging point in the fur industry over the last few years has been the huge uptake of designers who are ditching fur. And it's just been astounding to watch. It feels like, especially in the winter months, every like couple of weeks, a new major label comes on board to the point that I'm left wondering who hasn't banned fur from their product lines yet. So uh, it's been great to watch and I'm wondering do you have any explanation for this amazing progress by designers in recent years? Is this a result of all of your great work at for the fur bearers and other organizations, or is it something where society is just ready for it or a combination or what? I, I mean, I think certainly we're watching a few different things happen. Um, so the fur bearers belongs to an international coalition called fur free Alliance. And they're definitely worth checking out if you haven't been to their website yet. It's furfreealliance.com. 
Um, the Fur Free Alliance is made up of about 50 international organizations that are working on the fur issue. So it's a lot of fun for us to compare notes. And um, we have regular meetings talking about uh, this you know, the global fur trade. So under um, the Fur Free Alliance, there's a program called the Fur Free Retailer Program. And the, this is um, where a lot of our, the work comes out about encouraging companies to adopt a fur free policy. And I'm happy to report to date, there is 1,451 retailers have agreed to a fur free policy. Oh. And these are major retailers. So North Face, Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors, Gucci, Zara, Lacoste, Prada, Hugo Boss, H&M, uh, Versace, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, all the big names. Um, and certainly recently we saw the announcement with Winners, which is a Canadian retail chain going for free. So that was really great. And we believe, I think there's a few reasons why you're seeing companies go for free. One, I think it's really good business. I think there's a lot of companies that are really now finally adopting sustainability as a meaningful part of their business um, as a core value of their business and company. And, and they're really seeing animal welfare as a key component of that. Um, it's really difficult to argue animal welfare when you're talking about the fur trade. It, it, it's nearly impossible. Um, it's completely indefensible, to be honest. So, so I think a lot of companies just really get it. I think there is a lot of pressure from consumers. I think there's also just better design, quite frankly. I think that innovation uh, and the evolution of sustainable textiles and cool things that we can do with textiles and design is just inching out fur. Fur is, is so irrelevant and so dated as far as a textile goes. Um, there's just much more, again, innovation on the market. So it, it it's, um, it's really difficult to make the business case for fur. It, it's just not there for these companies. It's not how, you know, they generate the bulk of their revenue. So um, I think they're seeing a cost benefit analysis that it's just better to go for free and gain the goodwill. Uh, it, it's a great way to express your values as a company, as a company that cares about animal welfare. It's easy to take a stand on just because it's it's probably such a small part of their inventory and business. Why not? Um, so I think you'll you'll see more. I think I think you'll definitely see more magazines, um, runways, uh, celebrities. The writing the writing is definitely on the wall. Well, I was pretty happy that Nordstrom recently announced that it was banning fur as well, because that's well, sure a story I occasionally like to frequent when we're not in the global pandemic. Uh, but what was holding me back from going there perhaps more often is that I would have to be confronted with Canada goose jackets every time I walked in. It's just this like fur right in your face, which I don't want to see. But interestingly, even Canada goose is one of those retailers that it's announced is taking some steps on fur, which I attribute 100% to activism over the years because they've been a major target of activism campaigns, including by you for sure, by us, by many, many other organizations. So they announced in the spring that they're going to move towards using, quote, recycled fur. Now, I wonder if you can interpret a little bit what, for our listeners, what that might mean and what that might be, what that might end up looking for in the future. It's, you know, it's, and it's sort of a complex question, but you know, if you look on Canada Goose's website at the moment, they're really de-emphasizing fur. Like a couple of years ago, all of the advertisements, all of the parkas they'd be pushing had fur trim on them. And now they don't. There's just a couple out of their inventory. So I'm just wondering, do you think this signals a broader move away from fur for this company? 
It's definitely a bold move and, and a very curious one. So when Canada Goose made the announcement, we were a little apprehensive about making any kind of celebratory comment or remark, partly just because Canada Goose is always and notorious, um, notoriously wishy-washy with their marketing strategies and some of the, the claims that they use for their products. And so when they made the statement that they were moving to recycled fur, Certainly, I think it raises a lot of questions and red flags, primarily because of the quantity that they would need to seek um, is just ginormous. And quite frankly, I don't know that there's enough recycled fur on the market. Um, yeah, I mean, who's going to buy a thousand dollar Canada Goose jacket and then like bring it back and trade it, it in? It's the, the magnitude and scale that they could ha- would would need Um is really extensive. So I, I, I worry a little bit about that. I also, for a company like Canada Goose, obviously they have certain benchmarks for quality. Um, so a lot of people, I'm not sure if they know, but when an, when an animal is killed for their fur, some of that fur isn't necessarily usable. So for example, with Canada Goose, they rely exclusively on coyote fur. So when you, if you look at a coyote, um, and especially with trapping, you can't always predict the quality of the fur that you're going to get in a trap. You get what you get because that's just what, what how the nature of trapping. And so with coyotes, I mean, there's so much fur that's just wasted because it's not the right color. It, it doesn't have the right length of, of guard hairs, for example, um, you know, and a lot of the animals just discarded. So it, you really narrow your pool even more when you move to recycled fur. Uh, again, looking at if they want to maintain consistency and, and color and, and length of the fur and that type of a thing. So it, 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 um, I just have a lot of questions about how they're going to go ahead with that and make good on that promise. And I do agree with you. I think, I, I think there is a strategy, a larger strategy for them moving away from fur without making a big announcement about it, but they naturally are introducing um, garments that don't have fur at all without drawing attention to that. Uh, so I think, I think that makes sense that they would ultimately phase this out without a lot of fanfare. Um, Canada goose doesn't like to talk about fur, (laughs) uh, and they don't have any interest in engaging certainly with the activist community. And at this point, I, I don't know that, um, there's a lot of, positive relations even within the fur community, because I think they burned that bridge when when they said that they're no longer purchasing fur from uh, the auction houses, right? So it's, um, yeah, I, I really think Canada Goose sees the writing on the wall and they're gonna start slowly phasing it out entirely. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I hope they do, although I'm sure you'll join me in still not encouraging anyone to buy any of their parkers, given that they still use other animals products, especially the down feathers of, of ducks who were killed for that purpose. So, um, you know, baby steps, but it, it does seem like it reflects broader societal trends, which are good. I mean, we've, we haven't really talked about this yet too, but we're seeing municipalities now in the United States actually moving towards banning fur sales. So uh, actually, um, we talk about this a little bit later in the program, but Wellesley, Massachusetts, I believe was the latest uh, town to approve of uh, a ban on fur sale. So voters there asked for it. And they're the first 
state or city, I should say now, outside the state of California to have requested a ban on fur sales. So that seems pretty cool. And I hope it's something we might see in Canada at some point, although I, I know the issues are complicated. Definitely. It's very exciting what's happening in the U.S. Uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, the city of Berkeley um, all have banned or restricted first sales to some extent. New York City has been mulling on it for quite some time now. I'm not quite sure where that's at. I think that's still uh, being considered by council. Uh, and certainly, yes, Wellesley recently in Massachusetts made the move. I mean, I think I think it's possible in Canada. I'd, I'd never rule anything out. What makes Canada a little bit more tricky, I think, is our historical ties to the fur trade are so much more in depth. Um, it's really fur has, has sort of made its way in the social fabric <laughs> of our, our heritage, so to speak. And I think that's being challenged now um, because of its colonial roots. I, I, I really um, see fur kind of taking a bit of a backlash from that. And the idea of fur you know, as being a Canadian value, um, again, I think is much more, people are much more critical about that because of its ties to colonialism. And, um, you know, populations of animals were almost completely wiped out. Uh, so it's it's not, the fur, the fur trade is not a lovely trade, certainly as, as I think our, the proponents of fur would like to suggest. There's some romanticism, I think, that about it or that they try to claim there is, but um, it's just not there anymore. The industry is on the verge of imploding on itself. It really is. And, and I think there's many reasons for that, but it's, it's their own inability to evolve, really. Um, they, they absolutely have not evolved as an industry whatsoever. And they continue to regurgitate the same marketing tactics and, and, um, and just, just junk. They, they very done very, very little. Um, and as a result, I, I mean, I, I attribute fur to, um, being in the category of, you know, a track players, rotary phones, CD players, yellow pages. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> I mean, you spoke a minute ago about how textiles have evolved and how we've got all these amazing uh, scientifically, you know, validated high-tech materials that keep us warm in the winter. And so the question kind of becomes, why would anyone in this day and age want to, instead of just using some, you know, insulating material called Primaloft that's made by humans, why would anyone like go into the woods or no, better yet, confine a bunch of animals in the cage, forcibly impregnate them, raise them until they're mature enough, and then like gas them or break them ne their necks and then skin them and then put that on a jacket. It's just, it's lunacy when you look at it in, in that respect. So um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right about innovation. It seems to me that the most innovative thing we've seen from the fur trade in the last 20, 30 years is that instead of promoting full length fur coats, which have become like very unpalatable for people, they kind of moved towards um, incorporating fur as trim on a jacket. And I think the um, insidious nature of that is that a lot of people buy those jackets because they don't recognize that that fur trim is real fur. They think it's fake fur because they just assume that everybody wears faux fur these days. And Leslie, I'm, I'm sure you're like me. I can walk down the street in Toronto and from like 200 meters away, I can tell if somebody's wearing fur trim that's faux or fur trim that's real. It's just once you recognize it, you can appreciate it. But most people are not like that. 
I, I agree 100%. I, and I, in fact, I think as activists, we do ourselves a disservice when we promote fake fur. And, and we've been really conscious about that at the Fur Bears, actually, about we don't believe fake fur is an alternative at all. Um, we think, particularly in Canada, as you know, there's no labeling laws with fur. So uh, unless the fur is removed from the hide, a company is not obligated to label it. So an example of that would be Angora, where... Um, the, the rabbit fur is taken off the skin of the rabbit and woven in with, say, another textile like cotton or wool or whatever, and you make a sweater. Most fur um, is attached to the hide, like uh, you would see as fur trim. So if you part the little hairs and you go down, there's a skin there. So um, in those cases, fur doesn't have to be labeled. It's outrageous. So people, when you buy fur, fake or real, you don't even know. I, I agree. I, I think many people don't know what they're buying. There's a lot of perceptions too about, I think people think that fake fur is cheap um, when in fact real, real fur can be very cheap. Uh, rabbit fur, for example, can be purchased at the, I've seen it at the dollar store. I've seen it at the pet store. I've seen it on makeup brushes, um, really inexpensive products. And the fur industry, I agree. I, I think fur trim and pretending to pawn off their product as fake fur by dyeing it different colors, by shaving it, by getting it in little bits and pieces is, how they've tried to stay relevant. Uh, so I think there's a real opportunity for activists to not subscribe to that at all. I think fake or real, I think it, it, it's all um, confusing to consumers. I think it does the animals a disservice. And because there's so many other ways of um, keeping ourselves warm. And, and I think the industry will argue that fur is a natural renewable resource and that by choosing fake fur, it's a petroleum-based resource. And that's how they, they sort of position themselves as being um, environmentally superior. And there is some um, something to be said for that. I think if we do look at alternatives, some of them are made from oil-based petroleum products and plastics and polyesters and those types of things, which I mean, but that's not the only alternative, is it? No. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of like natural fibers. There's great coats you can make from hemp. I've seen pineapple leather. I've seen um, even you can repurpose so many different things from from thrift stores. And there's lots of ways, I think, that you can keep warm by using actual uh, renewable, you know, natural recycled materials. So it doesn't it's not just choosing fur or polyester. That's not the argument here. No, it's a false dichotomy. And I find that really frustrating too. Uh, I mean, some of our listeners may have a long enough memory to remember the furisgreen.ca campaign that the fur industry launched a number of years ago. I wonder if that website's still active. Probably it is. <laughs> but it's basically like the most textbook example of a greenwashing campaign that you can come up with. They're like natural, sustainable, renewable resource, not made from petroleum products. But guess what they don't mention? They certainly don't mention any of the harsh chemicals that go into tanning the hide of that fur. They don't any of the environmental contamination from fur farming. I mean, you look at provinces like Nova Scotia and phosphorus from, uh, you know, waste from minks who are kept in that province is polluting all kinds of waterways. And they definitely don't mention that on their, on their website. But I, you know, I think you're, I think you're right that they failed to adapt for the times. They're becoming increasingly irrelevant. And that brings me to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is NAFA. So the North American Fur Auction which has been to me a really uh, inspiring sort of point in this fight against the fur trade and uh, 
that we've, we've seen in the last number of years, at least. Um, so North American Fur Auction is one of the main sort of fur clearinghouses where all the institutional large buyers go to purchase their trapped furs and some farm furs too, I think. Uh, what's happening with NAFA these days? NAFA's in big trouble. Um, so, so there's two fur auction houses. So there's NAFA and then there's the fur harvesters um, auction house. So NAFA was located in Toronto and they go back to the days of the Hudson Bay Company. So there's a real nostalgia. And as you mentioned, it was one of the biggest and original um, auction houses. So how, how fur works, um, trappers uh, and, and, for farmers for that matter. So after an animal is killed, their pelt goes to auction and people all over the world descend upon these auctions and they buy these raw pelts that then they would use in their factories or whatever to make their fur products. So NAFA, um, the, their financing just fell through the floor. So their, their primary lender um, decided that they're no longer interested. Um, they just couldn't get it together. And my understanding is NAFA is now under some kind of creditor protection um, plan. So I, I, they just haven't been able to, to resurrect themselves at all. So NAFA is, is pretty much defunct. The fur harvesters auction, however, is still in business. So they're based in North Bay uh, in Ontario and they have auctions. I think it's a couple times a year. And I pulled what people don't know is how sad and pathetic the prices are. So when we talk about um, an auction, so the trapper would get a percentage of the sale of that individual animal. And then the auction house takes a commission of sorts um, to help cover the marketing and the promotion of, of that specific item. And I'm just flipping through my pages here to pull up my my listing of the prices. So here's the latest prices. And when I think of all the cruelty involved and I think of how much money people are, are making, it's so hard to reconcile. And so when we hear words like, well, trappers, um, trapping is an important livelihood. You often hear the word livelihood used as, as this is an important way of how they keep food on their table and how they support their families. And so if you keep that in the back of your head about a livelihood, you think of things like fair wage, um, minimum wage, some type of salary, right? And this is what we're talking about. So for example, a beaver, a whole beaver at auction right now is $14. Is a what a trap life for 14. Basically a uh, muskrat no. is a muskrat is $2.50. Oh. When you think of a muskrat, an otter $15. Martin $20. A skunk $4. So these are the prices that are being paid to trappers right now for our wildlife. And it sends me over the edge like that. We have this industry where clearly if, if you take away the animal welfare argument for a second and you just measure it on its merit as a business cost benefit analysis, it's not there. It is over. And it was over a long time ago when those are the prices right now for our wildlife. And so any notion of this being a livelihood or a thriving business or contributing to Canada's G, um, the gross national <laughs> product, um, all of those arguments for me go absolutely out the window. So when you think of any business, uh, 
you know, again, just a cost benefit analysis of, are you even making a living wage? Can you pay yourself properly? Can, you know, and trapping is expensive. So a trap line can cost tens of thousands of dollars. Your traps average at least $20 each and you need, I don't know how many of those. And all of the time to properly prepare a pelt um, the skinning and the, the the stretching and the drying, the transportation, the gasoline, your snowmobile, like, forget it. Like, you're, I, I just really feel as though when we look at fur farming and we look at trapping, it doesn't make sense in my brain, again, you know, certainly from an animal welfare perspective, but also just as a straight up business model that this is not viable. And and when it's even more concerning when you think of how much and you know how many subsidies are, are given, um, both provincial and federal, millions and millions of dollars are being dumped into both trapping and fur farming. And if that money was redirected into some transition opportunities, um, you know, throughout the uh, election in the states, you know, listening to Biden, and there's a lot of talk about. Um, moving people to a green economy, right? That we need to look at innovation and green economies and solar and wind, and that's the future. And I think, what are we doing? Like, why are we not helping people transition out of the 1800s, literally, <laughs> into something that is profitable, where they can really thrive and contribute something meaningful to the environment and to future generations. Yeah, it's that's crazy. exactly it. The government is is using our tax dollars to keep this industry on life support, all because some special interest lobbyists from the fur industry have have, uh, have the government's ear and they've managed to cultivate this romanticized notion, as you point out, of what the industry is like that really falls far short of what society expects. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out as well that uh, in addition to the millions that you've mentioned that the governments give directly to the fur industry, there's also a huge indirect subsidy, which is that the government in uh, many cases doesn't even bother to regulate or inspect this industry. So most places in the country, there's no inspections of fur farms. Nobody's there to see if there's any animal welfare conditions. Uh, when people have gone onto fur farms uninvited, they've seen horrible conditions. They've seen minks cannibalizing each other, living in their own filth, um, literally losing their minds because of the stereotypic conditions. And this in and of itself is just a massive, uh, you know, subsidy to the industry too, because they don't have to pay the costs of improving conditions. So I, I couldn't echo that more. And one of one of the frustrating things I agreed about mink farms and is a lot of the regulations, as you know, are voluntary um, or simply guidelines. And even when you do have inspections and, and we've FOI'd a lot of those government documents, I've read a lot of inspection reports. They're so vague and and literally a two page document. Um, it's a, it's just merely a checklist of the most basic questions, you know, and the questions would be. Um, uh, does this farm have adequate shelter? 
well, what the hell is that? What does adequate mean? How is that measured and who's measuring it? And by what standard? I don't, and it's nothing is defined, nothing's explained, there's no consequence. And in some cases we've seen inspection reports from various provincial governments where those doing the inspection have never even been on a fur farm. They're not a veterinarian. They're not, they're not specialists in, in mink or even wildlife. Um, so that's another problem too, is even when there is an inspection, it does require some knowledge and education of what you're even looking at. Um, and lastly, to add to that, I, I really worry about how many animals are suffering and their suffering is overlooked by the, by the, for no other reason than the sheer scale. And with these animal industries, all of the, all of the industries, anytime you have thousands of individuals in one location and in mink farms, an average farm can be 20,000 mink. It could be up to 60,000 mink, depending on what time of year it is and, and where they are in, in their product, so-called production cycle. How is that humanly possible for one or two inspectors to be properly assessing at best, you know, or, or at minimum 20,000 individuals. And when you think about the word assessment, what you're really saying is it's an observation. You're walking by a cage, you're observing an animal for a couple seconds. And so really only those with the most grotesque, obvious injuries are gonna get noticed. So if you're missing a head or a leg, um, or you have some really big, you know, injury that is really obvious, you're, you're not going to be recognized. And to relate back what we were talking about earlier with COVID, COVID is a respiratory virus. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, it's not necessarily bold like cannibalism, for example, you might not be able to pick out, it could be a lot more subtle, but just as deadly. And so these inspections, the words woefully inadequate are an understatement. Like it's an absolute joke um, to take off some boxes and call it an inspection that there, there really is no protection for these animals. And unfortunately now with COVID, it's arguable that there's protection. There's no protection for people um, that are working on these farms or in close proximity to these farms. Are you aware, Leslie, of whether the government, federal or provincial, has started doing any sort of testing of fur farms in Canada to detect whether COVID's showing up? To the best of our knowledge, no. So we have written every province in Canada, so where we know there are mink farms, um, and we have received, I'd say half of the provinces we reached out to have responded, not all of course, only half responded. And the responses are one to two paragraphs, um, very much a sentiment of there's sort of this false reassurance and that, you know, COVID has not been found on any Canadian mink farms, therefore it's not a problem. And that they rely on the industry to do a good job. They think they're, it sounds like Trump. They think they're doing a good job. <laughs> Everybody's great. We're all doing a good job. You did a good job. You did a good job, good job. You know, but that's not substantiated with any evidence or supported by any documentation. And so they're simply passing the buck by by saying that, you know, the industry's on it. Um, and this is the problem with industry self-regulation. I mean, you spoke a minute ago about how um, the inspections, when they do exist in some provinces where they mandate them, are so pro forma, right? It's like, is there adequate shelter? That's language taken directly from 
the provincial general animal welfare laws, which are meant to apply to all situations, but there's never anything specific to the conditions that minks or other farmed animals, including animals farmed for fur, have to be kept in. So what they do instead is they just let the industry write up their own rules. And uh, folks maybe are not aware, but we complain about NFAC, the National Farm uh, Animal Care Council, a lot on this podcast because it creates these voluntary codes of practice that are not law, do not have the force of law, and can't be enforced. Um, NFAC doesn't just do that for farmed animals that we eat for food, it does that for minks as well, and I believe foxes too, right? They do. The, you know, it's worth saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the airtime for this because I think it's so important. It is absolutely outrageous. So when we talk about the codes of practice and for your listeners that are familiar with the codes, yes, for fur farming, there are two codes of practice in Canada. One is for minks and one is for foxes. In the code of practice for foxes, it is recommended in the NFAC codes that euthanasia be anal electrocution. And it's built into our federal codes. And I, my heart absolutely sinks every time I read that stupid document and I have no idea how or why that ever got approved. And so when you hear animal activists say anal electrocution, that is not something that's dramatized or that's not something that's exaggerated to win the public sympathy. Anal electrocution is recommended by Agriculture Canada in the codes of practice and the national codes of practice for foxes. And you would never ever allow that in any animal shelter across Canada. And oh, foxes are that to a cat or dog, you'd be prosecuted for sure. Well, and, and foxes are dogs. They're a, can- they're a canid. They relate it to the dog family. And so how or why they get away with this is just outrageous and shame on anyone sitting on that stupid committee for allowing that to go through. And, and um, it, it is completely inappropriate. And one of those things, again, where I, I, the public doesn't know, the politicians don't know, and it is, it has got a Canadian stamp on it that this is this, you know, for foxes and on Canadian fur farms, that's the recommended form of euthanasia. And I, I, it's in writing, you can download the document, it is a government document. And I, I, I don't, I don't even have words of how or why that's allowed. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to challenge that at, at some point. Um, well, it, this is exactly what happens when we let industries make up their own rules is that they will do things for expedience and uh, economic reasons yeah. and not for the reasons of protecting animals. Yeah. Um, gosh, we haven't even got into the trapping regulations and the kind of cruelty they allow, but that's okay. We can save that for another episode. Leslie, this has been a really great conversation. Um, I wonder, you know, looking to the future, it's clear that this is an industry on life support at this point. It's being kept alive by government subsidies. Um, And it looks like we're starting to see this trickle down into the number of fur firms too. Are are you seeing fur firms shudder because of the poor pelt prices, because there's no market for this product anymore? Absolutely. So right now it's a lot of preliminary discussions. So certainly the past few years have been really hard for fur farms. And so the the fall of NAFA was was a huge uh, pillar for the industry. So so that's crumbled. 
Um, certainly Canada Goose's announcement and the wishy-washy statements there from Canada Goose, again, really undermines confidence. The fur industry and the prices around the market and international, how fur is traded a lot, it's like stocks in, in that it, it's built on public confidence, right? And so when the confidence is shaky, people pull out their money. Um, and, and we're seeing that now. And then certainly with COVID, I mean, it's the nail in the coffin and that it's impeded trade, you know, we know that mink are vectors for COVID. COVID's a giant disaster for the industry. Um, so there have been some comments, we know, um, for the Canadian Mink Breeders Association at their annual general meeting, there was a comment made by the chairman that he believes once COVID is said and done, right now there's about 100 mink farms in Canada and they, in their own words, they expect that number to be cut in half, even a little bit less. So they're looking at maybe 40 farms um, in the next few years just because of, of COVID and it's it's just the markets aren't aren't there anymore and the markets quite frankly are even oversaturated the fur that is even at the auction houses isn't selling because there's just way too much inventory as it is um the other thing i think is again with with fur farms certainly in europe um denmark is going to take a hit so there were some comments there um that right now there's about a hundred hundred million mink uh in denmark and they suspect it's going to go down to about 15 million mink so you can see a dramatic decline there so i mean I think when I think about the future of fur, certainly, again, I think the industry is in big trouble. Um, I think it's because of caring people who are listening to this podcast who have chosen to go for free. I think it's because of the companies taking a stand. I think it's from NGOs and groups like Animal Justice and Fur Bears, designers. Um, the last piece, though, I think to really drive it is we need to untangle the fur industry from government. Government is the final holdout and you're right. It's the subsidies are what keeps the fur industry in business. These constant handouts uh, to the industry. So I think there's some work to be done to create the political will. That's the last piece. We need the political will to say no more handouts, no more subsidies. And let's get you out of this industry and into something, into meaningful work that is going to generate a positive net return and can contribute meaningfully to society. Um, that's that's where we need to shift, I think, our, our attention. And we can all do that. I mean, I encourage all of your listeners to take a minute to familiarize themselves with their provincial um, politicians. So your MP or your MPP or your MLA, depending on, on where you live, please, you know, just type in provincial representative, Google around, you can put in your postal code if you're not familiar with that individual. But if you have any complaints about animal issues, that's your target. Like the, I really encourage people to, to occupy space and time with their politician. Um, that's emails. what they're here for. They work for us. Yeah, exactly. So all of your complaints, um, instead of, of just airing them on, on Facebook and speaking into a vacuum, we need to channel some of that into our politicians, because a lot of these politicians just don't know. And then um, certainly, I think federally, you can talk to your MP about the fur industry. But again, keep in mind, 
fur, the fur industry is regulated provincially, but where it matters federally though, is to talk about the subsidies and, and because there, there are federal subsidies going into the fur industry. So you want to speak directly to that. And also COVID is in national interest. So you can raise those two issues with your federal representative and, um, please share with us any responses that, that you get. But um, that, that's where we got to go now is we got to generate political will. Uh, and, and like I said, the animal welfare case is a slam dunk. The business case is a slam dunk. There's a great alternative future here for those in the business. Um, there is a way out and we need to help make that happen. And that's what gives me hope. Society's attitudes have changed and the, the law follows society. So our legal system, our political system catches up once we as individuals change. And our conversation has give me, given me tons of hope that that is indeed happening. Thank you, Leslie, for sharing all these exciting moments in the fight against the fur industry and the fight to protect animals from this horrible cruelty just for fashion. So um, yeah, I think our listeners learned a lot from this discussion. We appreciate having you on and I hope you'll be back again sometime. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for all the work that you do. And thanks everyone for listening at home and the work that you're doing, because it's, it's a real team effort. Um, it's great. Heroes and Zeros. All right. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment of Pawn Order, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. <laughs> okay, well, we spoke about some good news already from the U.S. election, and it turns out there's a bit more good news for animals. So a couple of news stories we just wanted to highlight. Uh, number one is that Denver repealed its uh, decades standing ban on pit bulls. Actually, there had been some effort to do this earlier in the year or sometime in the last 12 months, but the, the mayor of Denver actually uh, vetoed efforts to mm -hmm. overturn the pit bull ban. But um, after more than 30 years, finally, the pit bull ban is to be no more, thanks to the sensible voters of Denver who voted against it. So that is great news. 30 years. Wow. I mean, hopefully this starts a trend in all of these decades old bans in other places as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as, as maybe some of our listeners know, there there is a bill that's not active from what I can tell at the moment in Ontario to get rid of our pit bull ban, which has been in effect since I think about 2005 or around there. Uh, again, you know, it's just bad policy. It's bad law. It doesn't make the community safer. It results in dead dogs mm -hmm. and it uh, costs us enormous amounts of money to enforce all for no public benefit. Yeah, we so have the Bravo. same issue here in Winnipeg. Yeah. In the, yeah. In the city of no, Winnipeg. No, it's, it's just bet. these... Yeah, these pit bull bans just their their time has passed. It's time to get rid of that outdated thinking and move towards responsible care type bylaws instead of outright bans. Yeah. So thank you for to Denver for hopefully starting a trend. Let's hope. Let's hope so. And in more good news, the town of Wellesley in Massachusetts voted by referendum to ban fur sales. Yes, it's the first city outside of California to ban the sale of fur. So good for them. Pretty cool. We've all, we already got West Hollywood, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Berkeley, which have banned fur sales. And uh, yeah, Wellesley is a town just west of Boston. Um, I don't think I've actually been there, although I did live in Boston for a year. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 pretty exciting. So um, the, the fur industry, as we've heard about today on the show, is, is taking a hit recently. And 
I think it's just really exciting just to watch all the progress being made and look at what might be to come. Yeah, watching retailers um, forego fur and watching uh, uh, towns and their own municipalities uh, do the same thing. It's it's really great to see. And I hope uh, like the same thing that this is a trend. Yeah, let's hope so. All right, so now we can move on to our zero. Uh, So Federal Agriculture Minister Mary-Claude Bibeau announces Canadian Pork Promotion and Research Agency because that's what we need right now is promotion of pork in Canada. So this is to actually market and sell more pork in Canada, right, Camille? Yep, the quote from the news release says that the PRA will support the competitiveness and sustainability of the pork sector by enabling the development and implementation of promotional and research activities. The sustainability of the pork sector, (laughs) really? The meat industry is the opposite of sustainable. Oh my gosh, you should see the bus ads running here in Manitoba on uh, on the Winnipeg Transit buses for Manitoba pork saying how sustainable they are and all the work they're doing to be sustainable. It's the same thing like the dairy industry like we talked about before, uh, promoting themselves as sustainable. It doesn't make any sense. Wow. No, it doesn't. I mean, I guess it shows that they're scared of, of the green sort of movement and how people are increasingly waking up to the fact that meat is uh, not a very good thing to eat for the planet. So that's good. But yeah, just so this new agency, the PRA is what they're calling it. Mm. Um, it's going to be, it, it's, it's interesting how it's set up. It's actually set up as a checkoff program. So a checkoff program, uh, these are very common in the States and we have a couple in Canada too, including the Canadian Beef Checkoff Agency, where there's a levy that's going to be collected on imported pork products. And um, apparently there's another levy paid by producers across the country. So basically, consumers are going to essentially foot the bill because the costs are always passed on to consumers for this agency, which ultimately goes back to try to, to convince consumers to consume more of this product. Oh, my gosh. Hard to imagine, especially at a time like this, that this would be a priority. Yeah, I know. We have um, climate commitments that we're not doing great on the um, we're being on track to meet them in the way that we need to be. And instead, this is where the effort is lying. So, you know, that's that's unfortunate. So you're our zero federal agriculture minister, Mary Claude. Boo. 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 Probably won't be the last time. <laughs> All right, Jess. Well, that's our episode for this uh this week it was great to join all of you and we're looking forward to coming back again in a couple weeks yes thank you camille that was episode 67 wow 67 how are we already 67 episodes in anyway i say that pretty much every episode so i'll stop but (laughs) (laughs) well done all right till next time signing off bye bye We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can-
can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K, and we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!